Down to Business with Bobby Kerr. Brought to you by Bank of Ireland on News Talk. Last week you heard me talk to Dr. John Gray, the author of Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus from last week's Pendulum Summit. The Pendulum Summit has a great guest and this year was no exception. So I want you to hear this. I spoke to a man called Charlie Engel, who is an amazing story. Have a listen. I'm down here in the Pendulum Summit and one of the great speakers, and I've been hearing murmurs about him all morning, is that this man was the top speaker at the Pendulum Summit in its 10th year. His name is Charlie Engel. And to call Charlie a runner would be doing him a massive disservice. He's ran both across the Sahara and indeed the USA. And he regularly does 100-mile runs. What a man. Charlie, you're welcome to Ireland. Now, I'm the one that's been starting that rumor that I was the best speaker so far. So, but, uh, well, you've done thank- a good job. <laughs> i got a good PR agent. So, no, but thank you so much. I'm having a great time. Maybe tell us about your story, Charlie, because, you know, it's, it's one that maybe turned uh, something that was troublesome, that, that was mm-hmm. problematic, and that maybe you had addiction issues, but you've now channeled them in. 30-odd years ago, uh, but still you channeled your addictions into uh, uh, this extraordinary energy. Yeah, no, I appreciate that viewpoint. I, You know, look, my 20s were pretty much a disaster. You know, I, uh, I went to college when I was 17 uh, at the University of North Carolina and, and uh, had the good fortune to hang out with guys like Michael Jordan for a couple of years while I was in college. And then it really... Uh, things just really shifted for me uh, when I realized how incredibly average I was <laughs> when I got to college. And I learned that I was an incredibly talented drinker, though. And it's not actually something that uh, the, the career aspirations were not that great. But, uh, you know, I sort of became that guy for a while. And then others leave it behind when they leave college. And for me, it came with me. And it, and it took me seven or eight more years, you know, after college until I was 29 years old to kind of, I guess, get my act together. And my first son was born and, you know, I had tried to quit a few times, but when he was born, I was like, okay, this is it. You know, I want to be a good dad. I want to be a good person. So surely I can do it for him. Yeah. It's not how it works. Was it primarily alcohol or were there other substances involved? No, it was the 80s. So right. cocaine was a heavily a heavy part of my, you know, my daily yeah. uh, problems. And so, you know, he, a couple months into his life, I was doing pretty well. And then I had a, f- a final last, like, terrible episode for six days of drinking and drugging. And it ended with, you know, police and people shooting at my car and like it it was not you know handcuffed on the ground and like it was not a it was not a pleasant ending but it was a needed one for me and and you know that was the time when I realized like nobody's coming to save you you know dude your son can't save you you need to you need to pull yourself up here and get it together. Yeah, we hear the term, and I, I, it's often glibly referenced of rock bottom. Mm. Was it when you went to prison then uh, that that was your rock bottom, and you said, "Do you know what? I got to change things here." Yeah, you know what though? That's actually a slightly different story. But but my rock bottom from drugs and alcohol was literally that day that I'm telling you about. Um, And my prison experience was um, well over 15 years into my sobriety. Okay. So it was much later, and it's a very, you know, it's a very convoluted story. But in in short, uh, 
And I like to say to people too that you you actually don't know who you are until everything falls apart, yeah. right? People, it's easy to be optimistic when everything's going your way, Very but true. are you the person that can still be optimistic when kind of everything's going against you? And you know, and for me, the, the what happened just very briefly. People can look on my website, or you know, there's all kinds of things you can find out about me. You know, for better or for worse. Uh, but I became in 2010, like the only person in the United States to be charged with overstating my income on a home loan application. And this is all part of the big mortgage crisis that we all, all over the world suffered through. And, uh, you know, and I actually went to trial against the feds and I, you know, I was accused basically of like overstating my income on this application. I, I hadn't done it, found not guilty at trial, but still guilty of mail fraud because I signed this closing package and I put it in the mail. And ultimately, I got sentenced to almost two years in federal prison. Seems harsh. It was very harsh. And it was very, and look, the, a lot of media uh, picked up the story and it was, you know, widely regarded as uh, incredibly unfair. But, but I like to say that, like most things, there is a silver lining if you are willing to allow yourself to find it. And, yeah. and, I, and I recognize that even in a place like prison, you know, my happiness, fair or unfair at some point, doesn't matter. You know what I mean? There's no, you, you can spend all your time worrying about whether things are fair or unfair, but it was, uh, it was up to me whether or not I was going to be happy. And, you know, and I turned it into a super positive experience. So you, did you, are you saying then that you came out of prison a happy man? I did. How do you? I actually how did. Do you, how does that work? Because it's a choice. I mean, I'm not kidding. And and it, but here's the real the real key to it is, so my first sponsor when I finally did quit, you know, drinking and drugging, you know, I started going to AA meetings and I started running every day. And though I did those two things every single day, and my very first sponsor had this saying, and I still say it today: to keep it, you have to give it away. And it's a simple idea, but yeah. even in prison. Now, I went in there, and I wasn't trying to recruit other guys to run with me or whatever. I was running every day, and people started to see my life actually be better than theirs. And if you, if you allow other people to witness that, instead of trying to sell your stuff to them, they started coming up to me saying, hey, will you teach me how to run? I mean, by the time I left prison, I had 50 guys running with me every single day. Wow. I had 25 guys doing, these inmates doing yoga on the softball field every day. And it was, it was hilarious. And, you know, they thanked me for helping them in prison, but they're the ones who actually got me through the experience because I was able to be of service and do something outside of myself instead of sitting around feeling sorry for myself. That's a really, really interesting story. Let's chat about the running then. Mm. So is it about always finding the, the next longest, hardest, most obscure, most durable thing? Is it about pushing the barriers to, to what's next? And is that the progression? It's a perfect question. Um, I, I can also say today, as I sit here with you, I'm 61 years old. So my viewpoint has not surprisingly changed quite a bit. <laughs> so 31 years ago, it was about finding the hard, the hardest thing I could possibly do. Every, if it was a hard race somewhere in the world, running or adventure racing or cycling or climbing, I wanted to do it. Yeah. And I recognize now because that's what happens when we get older, right? I can look back now and realize that a lot of that was based in ego and me trying to prove not only to myself, but to other people that I 
was strong and tough and had value. So I, I learned a lot of lessons about suffering in those years. Yeah. And it helped me. Now, flash all the way forward to today, I'm still doing hard things, but the reason behind it is more about like cultural exploration. I mean, I get to come somewhere like Ireland, like the friggin' friendliest people on the planet. And it is actually because I'm a runner. Like that's that's the reason that I got invited to this conference because yeah. I I speak about my big running experiences. And what I recognized a long time ago is that nobody cares about the running. I don't even care about the running. You know, after five minutes of watching me run, it's like, what the hell else are you going to do? It's like, this is not that interesting. So if there's not more substance to it and there's not more introspection and, and trying to figure out what the hell's wrong with me, I mean, I'm on a constant, you know, mission to understand myself better. And when we talk about this extreme running and maybe the pain that's involved with it, mm. is there an attraction in a kind of a weird way to, 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 to pain? Well, you are a very astute interviewer because not many people get to that place so quickly. And I, I recognize that in me, I am attracted to pain in a certain way. Yeah. And a part of me, not to get too like Dr. Freud here, but... A part of me still even today feels like I don't deserve good things because that's, you know, that's part of my history sure. and my trauma and probably why I drank and drugged to begin with because I didn't feel worthy. And so I drag some of that baggage still along with me today. And certainly in the early years of running, I, it was half punishment yeah. and half exploration. A kind of form of beating yeah. yourself up. Yeah, wow. yeah. Yeah. So it was a it was a a very great lesson for me, and and I still here's the thing today I talk openly with you about all of this now too because it's about vulnerability. You know, I could I could sit here and tell you uh, here's all the you know big runs I've done and you know I set this record and I did that thing and does that actually Again, after a couple of minutes, like there's enough of that. If you share vulnerability with sure. other people, then they will open up and be vulnerable in return. And I think that's the that's the beauty of you know that kind of communication. You've said quite openly that you've never felt loved. Um, is that has that always been with you? Is that something you think about, or it is something I think about? And, and I and my view has changed in recent years. Um, partly because, you know, I, I read a lot and I, uh, there's a couple of people out there that I admire their view on trauma, especially trauma as a young person. So I wasn't beaten, but my, you know, my parents were 18 years old when I was born. They got divorced when I was one year old. My dad left and went into the army and I didn't see him for five or six years. And, yeah. you know, and I, I just, that happens to a lot of people, and I just sort of brushed it off uh, in my history. I have a long series of addiction in my family, so I'm like fourth generation. So I just always said for years that, oh, it's just like a genetic thing, and, you know, I, I was destined to be a drinker and drug addict and all of that. I've modified that viewpoint in recent years because I've learned that that trauma that actually happened to me early on did affect me and it made me a very insecure person. So when I went to college as a 17, 18 year old and I discovered that I could drink those feelings away, yeah. I did it. Yeah. And and I was and I did it a lot. And 
I just thought it was something that I was going to grow out of. And, and now, since then, uh, I've used a lot of, you know, I've been running at this for years. <laughs> There's a reason I run these long distances. And some of that is to dig at that stuff. Sure. I want to understand it better. But some of it, I, you know, I, I couldn't reach. Yeah. And, and, and so the recognition that uh, it's a process and no matter what your age, it doesn't mean you got to be all... You know, I don't have to be all teary and woo-woo every single day, but I like, uh, I don't even remember who said it now, but that old saying, you know, is like a life unexamined is wasted. Some, I'm paraphrasing, but some version of that. Like, and if you don't, if you don't examine those things and those feelings, then how are you ever going to figure out, yeah. you know, where you're, where you're going if you don't know where you came from? Absolutely. So what's life like now for the 61-year-old Charlie? Uh, is it? And one, and while you say you've 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 moderated your ambition, uh, I'd say that there's still plenty of ambition there. There is, there yeah. is. And you know, my next big adventure is is you know I, I years ago am known for having been the first person to run almost eight thousand kilometers across the Sahara Desert, uh, and in that adventure I ran two marathons every single day for one hundred and eleven days in a row. Oh my God. And uh, nobody ever said ultra runners were smart. <laughs> so this isn't an intelligence quest, uh, question. <laughs> and, uh, and I've done a lot of other hard adventures, you know, in the meantime. But I have one coming up hopefully next year, assuming sponsors and money aligns and, and timing and my body and everything else. And that's actually to go from the lowest place on the planet, which, which is, is the, the Dead Sea. Dead Sea, yeah. Yeah, to the top of Mount Everest, which we all know is the highest place on the planet. And to do all of that human-powered, not just running, but to be running and cycling and rowing uh, and climbing and even doing a free dive in the Dead Sea. And, you know, I call it, you know, slow motion uh, adventure because it's, again, it's just a long, it's almost 4,000 miles again. Wow. Wow. And, you know, it's the point is, though, again, I get to actually see... When you're driving in a car and being a tourist somewhere, you know, you don't really interact with people and you don't see that much. When you're on foot or you're on a bike, like you see a place, even like Ireland or anywhere, you see it so much differently. It's like if I go to any European city or any city, I always go for a run. Yes. I think it's the best thing you can do early in the morning in a city you've never been to before. Yeah, three o'clock in the morning or four o'clock in the morning. I'm not kidding. First of all, the drunks don't want to—they don't want to chase you, right? If you're walking, they might be interested, but if you're running, they're going to let you go right on by. Yeah. And it's a way to sort of feel the personality of a of a city. And I, I mean, look, it—I still have a lot of other things I want to do. Um, I don't mind saying uh, my wife is here in Dublin with me. And it's the first trip she's been on with me for six years. She's been fighting a really serious cancer that's been trying to kill her for a long time now. And she hasn't been able to travel. And today, right now, as I speak to you, today's our uh, 10th wedding anniversary. Yeah. So she was like, I'm coming on this trip. (laughs) And so she's on her way over, in fact, from the hotel in just a minute. And, uh, you know, and so part of this trip is about honoring you know our relationship and not and not you asked me what my motivation is i don't know she doesn't know we don't know if what the future holds i mean none of us knows of course in our case with her illness it's a little more complex and things can take 
a turn very suddenly, you know, or hopefully they will, they will continue to improve. But that knowledge of not knowing uh, allows us to really maximize today. Okay. Well, listen, give her our best. I will. Uh, wish her well. And what a, an inspirational man. Uh, Charlie, great to meet you. Uh, Charlie Engel, uh, extreme runner, extreme man, and cool guy. Thanks for talking to us today. It's a pleasure. Anytime. Cool. Anytime. Down to Business with Bobby Kerr. Brought to you by Bank of Ireland. Saturday morning at 11 on News Talk.